Welcome to the next in the series of Editor's Choice Podcast. This is Philippe Albuquerque. I am the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. We are pleased today to have Dr. Ansar Rai, who will discuss his manuscript entitled A Population-Based Incidence of M2 Strokes Indicates Potential Expansion of Large Vessel Occlusions Amenable to Endovascular Therapy. Dr. Rai is a former associate uh, editor of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery and is currently uh, at the Department of Interventional Neuroradiology at West Virginia University Hospital. Ansar, welcome, and thanks again for doing this. Thank you, Philippe. Pleasure to be here. So uh, in reading this very interesting article, which will be published in the June print issue of the JNIS and is currently available online, I was uh, immediately struck by your methods. In particular, I would like you to discuss basically your ground-up approach to predict national averages of LVO strokes and LVO and M2 strokes. Let me preface that by uh, briefly introducing your manuscript. So as mentioned in the title, uh, this manuscript basically seeks to predict a local and national average for the incidence of M2 strokes, a growing concern uh, among interventionalists. Uh, Ansar, can you briefly uh, discuss your methods for this study? Yes, thank you, Philippe. Uh, I believe your question regarding methodology is at the crux of differences in LVO stroke estimates that we generated versus others. When I mentioned top-down approach, it pertains to estimating stroke numbers and the assumptions that are built into those estimates. For example, everyone quotes the 800,000 number of total strokes. Now, that number itself is an extrapolation from several studies, including the Greater Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, five-county database, the NINDS-based studies. And these are based on ICD-9 codes of discharge diagnosis. Uh, we estimate that 87% of these strokes are ischemic. Again, these are based on the discharge diagnosis in a well-defined population. Up to this point, these estimates are fairly reasonable because they were predefined diagnosis, a predefined population. The assumptions and the uncertainty that we mentioned happened after this number. It is, uh, quote-unquote, assumed that half of all ischemic strokes are secondary to large vessel occlusions. Now, where does that number come from? That assumption is based on a couple of prospective studies that were conducted in large hospitals, MGH on the East Coast, UCSF on the West, that looked at CTA in stroke patients. But the problem is that these are based on suspected stroke admissions um, in the emergency rooms of these tertiary care hospitals in large metropolitan centers. It's not an estimate of the number of LVOs in the population they serve, only the patients that are brought to those hospitals. And this is a big difference because the denominator is different. The denominator that is used in the 800,000 total strokes of which 87% ischemic are all acute ischemic strokes as predefined by the discharge codes. Whereas with these studies, the only conclusion we can draw is that half of stroke patients presenting to these large hospitals had an LVO. It's possible that patients with, say, 
minor strokes deficits were not brought to these hospitals. So they're not included in the denominator. Yeah. That's, that's the top down when we start with the 800,000, 87% ischemic, and then we assume half our LVOs. And that takes the LVO number to 350,000. And then we make another assumption that probably half of them at least are favorable for endovascular therapy. Now, that is a big jump of assuming uh, half or any percentages feasible for endovascular because those are, again, based on um, studies that themselves included estimates. Uh, and this is in contrast to STEMI numbers for acute MI because the assumptions that are derived from the top-down approach actually beat the STEMI numbers, and we know coronary artery disease exceeds AIS by a margin. So for the ground up approach, typically if you review the literature for any good population studies or incident studies, I think there are three main criteria that define good population studies. Number one, a well-defined study population. Number two, access to that population in terms of capturing disease. And number three, a reliable marker for disease. So for instance, in, in our center, which is a tertiary level one comprehensive and trauma center in a, in a well-defined rural population. Our hospital captures 85% of all stroke discharges in our catchment area. And we get that number from each county in our catchment area reporting to the Department of Health and Human Resources. And we use the same ICD-9 codes for AIS as used in the 800,000 estimate. So we have a well-defined population. We have good penetration in that population, over 85%. And the difference in our study compared to some of the other estimates is that we use CT and geography as the marker for disease for identifying LVO. So over a three-year period, we use these ICD codes from each county, of which 85% were at our hospital, about 3,000 patients. And all of these patients had an admission CTA, 98% of them and 2% an MRA. So we had imaging confirmed vascular occlusion site in a predefined population. And that's how we come up with the estimate without any presumed ideas of what that incidence is in our population. That's excellent. Um, Ansar, so certainly then the, the, the layers of assumptions and, and uncertainty that you mentioned in the introduction to your article are far less than with this ground up approach than with the top down approach. Can you briefly summarize uh, the results of your study? You also make the point of discussing the NIH stroke score of greater than uh, or equal to nine as being a cutoff uh, for where these M2 patients uh, do well or do poorly. Can you uh, discuss again your results uh, and as well what you're making in terms of a recommendation uh, based on this NIH stroke score? Right, so this was actually a very good recommendation from one of the reviewers that we see if we can uh, define a cutoff. Our purpose was to generate an estimate of M2 strokes. Uh, the NIH stroke scale of nine came out from the ROC analysis that patients above this level had a poor outcome significantly than those below. Um, I don't think that 
the, the study certainly does not advocate treatment or no treatment of M2 occlusions because it's not an outcome study. But the NH stroke scale of nine may be a useful cutoff if someone designs a randomized trial for M2 strokes. As below this number, it'll be hard to show a benefit in favor of endovascular, but above this, there may be a big swing towards uh, favorability for endovascular therapy. That's where the NIH comes from. The other point for using the NIH stroke scale is that, I mean, we know MCS segmentation is based on microsurgical anatomy described primarily in cadaveric dissections in the 80s, but functionally, a similarly designated anatomic segment may have different neurological presentation and consequence. And we need a more functional definition of an M2 occlusion. That's where the NIH stroke scale comes in. So by adding M2 occlusions, the rate of strokes requiring endovascular treatment, you mentioned could increase by as much as 22%. Uh, this is a massive increase. And I suspect that as we had previously discussed that there are already many centers that are treating M2 strokes. Did uh, this study influence uh, the way that you manage M2 occlusions uh, at your at your center, and and have you been managing M2 occlusions uh, endovascularly? Uh, yes, you're you're right. People are already treating M2 occlusions, and <clears throat> these are included in the number of thrombectomy procedures performed annually. I believe for 2017, somewhere between 24 and 27 thousand thrombectomies were done, which included M2. Our total estimate is about 100,000 LVOs plus M2, which is actually on the lower side of some of the other estimates that I've seen, which are above 200,000. We are treating M2 strokes at our center. Uh, we are using a higher level of functional disability, uh, certainly if it's greater than eight. We believe that more peripheral the vascular occlusion, the more distal the occlusion, the higher the deficit needed to show benefit. And we also use the perfusion footprint, uh, the size of the perfusion abnormality and the, and the NIH stroke scale, but we are selective in who we treat. Generally, we don't treat M2 strokes, certainly with, with a low NIH or uh, on the non-dominant side, we're, we're a little more careful, but, but you're right, people are, are treating them now. Yeah, that, that is my concern, and, and it's similar to a concern that we had uh, in the past uh, with, the, with the negative stroke trials. After those trials, uh, the use of endovascular techniques were, were highly debated and, and were actually um, advocated against. Uh, my concern is that, is that we are already considering treating a, a large population of patients that uh, potentially could do fairly poorly, uh, including those with low aspect scores, those outside of standard time windows, elderly patients. What, what, is, what are your thoughts, Ansar, um, on how we should proceed in the future with these populations that may or may not benefit from endovascular therapy? Yes, I, I, share, I share your concerns. Uh, exactly that now that we have these trials that show a benefit of endovascular under very you know strict inclusion criteria now that we show a benefit that we are now going to disregard those inclusion criteria of low aspects for instance um, time windows elderly patients 
I think history may serve us here. All we have to do is look at the coronary market and what happened after the initial angioplasty and STEMI stent trials. There was an open season on all coronary interventions and the number significantly jumped. The only thing that curtailed was the AHA doing a study and then putting in fairly um, restrictive criteria for acute STEMI interventions, for instance, tied that to reimbursement, created registries, and created outcome data. And I think that is what, as a field, uh, we need to do. That is where I think GNIS, SNS can certainly help that we make sure these treatments, procedures are entered into an outcome study, that these are monitored, similar to say, get with the guidelines, these should be included in comprehensive stroke designations, our outcomes should be included. Are you talking about registries or are you talking about prospective trials here? I'm I'm talking about uh, registries. I'm talking that at this point, so, for instance, if 27,000 thrombectomies were done last year, we don't know what the outcome was of those procedures. We don't know the details of those procedures. That can only happen if those procedures are entered in a registry or are part of being a comprehensive stroke center or a service that these cases are recorded are normalized for a national database. And then if the outcomes are above or below, that that will be a way to titrate some of these inclusion criteria. That's an interesting thought. Obviously, a major and controversial topic now is stroke systems of care. Everyone believes that changes need to be made. Your group has written extensively on, on this subject and reporting in this manuscript, what you discovered was based on your estimates that nearly 100,000 LVO plus M2 strokes will occur per year. Can you, Ansar, briefly sketch a picture of how you envision the future of uh, stroke systems of care, you know, especially from your perspective of residing in a somewhat rural area uh, in contrast to urban locations? Right. So we are somewhat in a favorable, unique situation in a rural setting where our hospital is the only large hospital that is providing these services. And and we are, uh, for lack of a better word, not competing with others. So we have a lot of influence with our EMS, with our local legislature in getting our patients here. The problem in the urban centers is because of a somewhat unregulated free market healthcare system you can have big hospitals few blocks from each other competing for these patients. And I think the the systems of care will evolve differently for different environments. I think one way to, um, an ideal way to work is that in urban centers, you have to share the resources. You have two or three hospitals that work collectively to provide stroke care and share the burden in getting patients transferred from one place to the other or base it on regions. But the incentive has to be there to develop these systems. And the incentive can only come from CMS 
in terms of reimbursement, in terms of incentivizing hospitals to transfer patients to a um, to a hospital that is capable of treating them, in terms of facilitating workflow between hospitals if it is tied to CMS. And CMS has is offering a, a 30 million grant for for QA and four systems of care. I, I don't think if the incentive, some incentive is not there that the systems will evolve on its own. If there is no incentive in terms of reimbursement federally or state-wise, then local systems will evolve. Local hospitals will evolve, um, will apply for for the comprehensive designation or thrombectomy capable designation, and that will clutter the system. I think it'll, it'll require a um, a significant push from the reimbursement side to tailor or guide these systems in the right direction. Well, that is certainly a, a subject that will continue to play out in the pages of uh, JNIS and, and certainly one that um, impacts uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Ansar, I want to thank you again for, for joining us today uh, on this podcast. Again, uh, your article, A Population-Based Incidence of M2 Strokes Indicates Potential Expansion of Large Vessel Occlusions Amenable to Endovascular Therapy by Ansar Rai and co-authors will appear in the June print issue of the JNIS and is currently online.